All right. Hey, uh, thanks so much for joining us again. Let us know how we can serve you. Uh, but go ahead and take your Bibles. Turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to finish up a series uh, today that we have been in for, I think this is the seventh week. This must be greater than that. Uh, most of this has been in the Gospels and almost particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. But today we're going to go to Acts chapter 4, the history of the early church. And then, by the way, next week we're going to start a brand new teaching series called The Chronicles of Average Joe. Average Joe actually is going to be uh, the Apostle Peter who had his ups, had his downs, uh, talked a lot too much, oftentimes was had great courage and other times was just tremendously scared. In other words, he looked a lot like us. And so we're going to start that next week. But here's the deal. I want to give a special shout out to a few folks. Let me just say uh, thank you, Renee from Franklin, North Carolina. All right. Thanks for tuning in uh, today. Morgan in Kingsport, Tennessee. All right. Just up the road. And then a special shout out to the, uh, the Gurma family who are hosting a watch party in Ohio at their house. So way to go. Hello to the watch party there. Hope you have a great, great uh, day and great time together. All right. One of the things we did talk about at our church, we probably talked about it uh, 25 times, and that is that the church, especially church services, whether online or on-site, church is in many ways supposed to be uh, like a huddle in a football game. All right, if you don't, even if you don't follow sports, you know what a huddle is. Huddles, when they kind of come together, they usually are in a tight little circle, and that is when they go over the play. Maybe they kind of give a little quick word of exhortation, and here's what we're going to do, and here's the plan, and, and then at the end of the huddle, they'll like go, they'll go, they'll clap hands like break, and then, at least in the football game, what they'll do is they will then go and run the play. I mean, just imagine, though, for a second, uh, let's just take uh, Patrick Mahomes for the Kansas City Chiefs, all right, Texas Tech alumni. Let's just imagine that uh, they do that same thing and they uh, call the play, calls the play, exhorts the people, ready to go out and execute it. And it's like break. And instead of going up to the line of scrimmage, the other players just look at him and go, Pat. And that's like, the way you called that play was amazing. I mean, when I hear you call a play, when I hear you kind of diagram that thing, I just get the feels. I mean, something comes over me and then I, I'm going to go back to the bench for a little while. And next time you're about ready to call the play, hey, call me back in because I want to hear you call the play. All that said facetiously, and that is that it is always the temptation for churches to drift toward church being just like that. Instead of being a place where we come together, we look at the playbook, we see what the play is, and then we go out and run the play during the week. Let me tell you a personal word to Biltmore Church. Been here 12 years, and in these 12 years, one of the biggest joys of my life is us just gathering together on the weekend, looking at what God's word says our play is, which is to glorify God by making disciples. And we look at it and we talk about it and we study it. And then you guys go out and run the play. You run the play in your neighborhood. You run the play in the schools, at your businesses and your families. So that is a, a tremendous joy. And uh, it can be all over. It can be training pastors. You guys have trained pastors and planted a hundred churches in Kenya, along with planting a bunch of water wells. You've made a big dent in the foster care crisis in Western North Carolina. You've shared the gospel with friends and family, and we've seen thousands of people baptized in the last few years. You have volunteered, you have supported through the budget, local partners like Western Carolina Rescue Mission, like uh, Mountain Area Pregnancy Services. And then the video you just saw, uh, the way that you have, uh, we, we've partnered up with Compassion International. 
and seen people released, seen children released out of the chains of poverty in Jesus' name is just a joy, and I hope you sense that same thing. And in many ways, what we're going to look at today has been a strong suit of Biltmore Church, but not only do we want to make sure we do not drift away from it, to be quite frank, it is quite easy to be caught up in the momentum of an organization and not personally be a part of it. It's very easy to say, you know what, look at all this great stuff happening, and yet you personally do not have your hands in there. You're like the fans in the stands watching the game saying, that is a, that's a great game. So again, in this series, this must be greater than that. What we've done is we've tried to take a very hopefully healthy look at where the church in the West is right now and how we need to course correct in many, many ways. And we've looked at that, you know what, love must be greater than hate. You know, repentance must be greater than rebellion. And we've just kind of gone through the scriptures and seen these blind spots that we have as a church to say, this has got, this has got to change. And so in Acts chapter four, the context is basically this. In the first few chapters of Acts, Acts chapter one, you've got about 120 disciples of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter two, you see 3,000 people, boom, they get saved in one day. So the church became a mega church absolutely immediately. It exploded. And historians, both secular and Christian historians, have argued and tried to figure out what in the world is a small, how did a small group of people with no political power, with no artillery, with no normal mechanisms of something that is just an enormous movement, how did that explode in such a remarkable way? And what all of them come back to is a factor, is the generosity of the early church. One Roman emperor named Julian, who persecuted early Christians, by the way, he said one time in, a dis in disgust that, quote, these infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own poor. One historian by the name of Arnold says, the most, most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of the communities. Christians spent more money in the streets than the followers of other religions spent in the temple. To put it all out there, we just got to understand the average American Christian gives 2.5% of his or her income to any charity whatsoever. I think all of us would just acknowledge that 2.5% of what God has blessed us with does not shout, we are living for a different kingdom. It just doesn't. And yet with so much information and misinformation and prosperity preaching and all this stuff out there, the question kind of just screams, how do we, how do we manage that? How can we be a generous people for the glory of God, for the good of other people, and for the joy and freedom and flourishing of our own souls? So Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read starting in verse 32. We're going to skip a little bit into chapter 5. It's just a little, uh, just to let you know what's there. Here, here's Acts 4:32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Again, those who believed. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Just stop right there for a second. Every now and then people will look at this and see, oh, the early church was socialist or the early church was communist. That is not it at all. This is not about uh, coercion by the government making people give up their stuff. This is voluntarily hearts of generosity in an act of love 
being generous with people. So they're completely different. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed each as any had need. By the way, back then, the typical way to have money was to liquidate your assets, all right? You had wealth based on your commodities. You didn't have 401ks. You didn't have investment portfolios. You had stuff. And so in this case, they were just liquidating some stuff when they saw a need so that the need then could be physically met. And here's an example that they lift up as a great example. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, Barnabas means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, again, uh, just a quick reminder, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is inspired. What is not inspired necessarily is the, are, the, are the chapter divisions. And so when you get to the end of chapter 4, verse 37, those numbers are there for our convenience to be able to look stuff up. But the Dr. Luke, who wrote Acts, goes from 437 right into five without any clear distinction what those are put there for us. So he goes from the, the great example of Barnabas and then he goes to a bad example. He says, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Same thing that Barnabas did. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? That's a really key understanding. This was a heart issue. This is a heart issue. We're not gonna be able to dive into this in a deep dive way, but I wanted you to see it. He's filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the land. And so here's what... Uh, Here's what we're going to talk about. How in the world, how, how do you have that kind of explosion of growth? How do you and I then uh, take something that is very delicate? I mean, if you want to get people to tune out or flip the computer off or not come back to church, you can talk about one of two things. You can talk about what does God's word say about uh, sex? Don't tell don't tell me what to do with my body. That's my body. Or you can talk about generosity because people will say, you know what? Don't tell me. That's mine. That's mine. And what we're going to see is that uh, in this, this is an example of what can happen when we understand that we're generous because God was generous with us. So let me give you a few principles. All right, we've, uh, you know, the, the offering was already done, so we're not going to be talking about, hey, we need an offering for the church. That's not it. So how do you give in a God-glorifying, gospel-expanding kind of way? Let me give you some principles out of this text. This first one's super important, is that it's motivated by grace. When you and I are generous, it is motivated by grace. Look at verse 32. It says, this was for those who had believed. Verse 31 actually said, those that were filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. One of the evidences, one of the evidences that somebody has actually come to faith in Jesus and understands the grace of God and they've met Jesus is there's a transition in their view of all that is in their possession. When we become a Christian, God gives us a new heart. And that new heart, part of that new heart is, you know what? Uh, God has blessed me in many ways to bless other people. And so 
a new Christian or even a growing Christian, we're grateful for the generosity of God and then we're generous toward others. Why? Because we want to mirror, we want to image, we want to glorify and reflect this God who is so very generous with us. So what are some other motivations that aren't good? I'll tell you what, number one, that was my MO for years, probably my first 15 years of being a preacher. And that was guilt, all right? That was my motivation. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that was my motivation. And that was the way that, you know what, I'm gonna motivate people is by guilt. I've told you before, I'm kind of a recovering Pharisee. And so with that, I was like, you know what? Are you telling me you're gonna let some kid starve overseas because you wanna double mocha frappuccino every day? Really, really? That's what you're saying? You're gonna get granite countertops. Do you understand you could build like a whole village over in Asia? That was it. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that there's not conviction and guilt that we should at times feel. Uh, read the book of Amos. Amos says, you know what? If you and I ignore the poor, God doesn't forget that. Uh, the book of James in the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother says, you know what? When you see somebody that needs food, need clothing, and you're like, eh, hey, going to pray for you, going to pray for you. It's like, man, are you even a believer if that's what you say? So we're not saying that guilt is necessarily something we should never have, but the motivation of guilt is usually just a short-term knee-jerk reaction. And here's the, here's the crystallization of what I want you to hear today. The goal, the goal is not for you to respond, built more church. It's not for you to respond generously to a sermon. It is for you and I to live generously in response to the gospel. And that's, that's, the, that's the whole thing in a nutshell. The goal today is not for you and I to go, oh, I feel guilty because he put up a video of those kids that need a sponsor. That's not it. I don't want you to respond generously to a, a sermon. I want us to live generously. Why? Because the gospel has showed us so much grace and our normal supernatural response would be to say, what else can I do? What can I do? So it's, it's, not about, it's, it's not about guilt and it's certainly not about greed. Okay? It's not about greed. It's not guilt. It's not, it's not greed. There's kind of two ways greed can show up today. The uh, first one is this is the pet peeve of mine. And I told you before, I'm not going to name names, uh, but I'm just saying the prosperity gospel is at its root form, a form of greed. The prosperity gospel, I've told you before. Uh, and by the way, if you're like, I don't even know what the prosperity gospel is. I've never even heard of that. Well, then you're blessed if you've never even heard of it. But it's all over the television. It's all over the U.S. It's all over the West. But even more tragically, it is all over places like in Africa that are so poor. And what they promise is basically this. If you follow Jesus, you're going to have health and wealth. And in some cases, like over in Africa, when let's say their daughters have been kidnapped and sold into slavery, they're like, you know what? Then, then you know what? If you will vow $10, God will give you a hundred back. If you'll vow a hundred, God will give you a thousand back. If you do this, God will return your daughters. I told you before, I was in seminary in Fort Worth, Texas years and years and years ago. And I was watching a, there was like this famous prosperity preacher. And this was all new to me. And I'm sitting here watching him. I was, I was, I was at work and it was a slow time. So I'm watching this and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing him say this. If you would just sow into my ministry, 10, God will give you a hundred, a hundred, God will give you a thousand, a thousand, God will give you a hundred thousand. And God didn't want you to be poor. God wants you to have enough faith to have a Cadillac and all this. I got so angry when I called up that 1-800 line. And I was like, do you understand? I started quoting them other verses. They were not convinced. I just want you to understand the whole prosperity gospel not only goes against experience, it goes against the Bible. It just goes against the Bible. I mean, think about it. All the apostles, they died. They died horribly. They got boiled alive. They got crucified upside down. They got thrown off a building. 
and just experience, just to say, you know what, it's not only not in the Bible, it's not here. We got people, it's like, you know what, I didn't have enough faith. That destroys more faith than it actually helped. So let me say then, is it true that God blesses those who are generous? The Bible does say that. It's not always dollar for dollar. As a matter of fact, the prosperity gospel basically says, God is my bellhop. God is my bellhop and I'm gonna ring the bell of faith and he's required to bring me some bonbons and a better pillow. And what that actually says is Jesus is not enough. It means, you know what? It better be about a lot more than just following Jesus. It better be a lot more than just God adopting me and forgiving me and pouring out grace in my life and taking my sin on his shoulders. It better be about candy and Cadillacs. And if it's not, I'm not sure. And what that whole thing is saying is, you know what? Jesus is not enough. You're like, what do you get if you follow God? You get Jesus. That's who you get. That's who you get. And he is enough. He is enough. But also there's just some plain old-fashioned greed that you see actually in Ananias. And we don't know what the property sold for. Let's just say, let's just say he sold this property and it was, he netted 500 grand and he kept back a couple hundred grand. It was his. It was voluntary anyway. But what greed basically says is what we call around here, I think my buddy Joey Martin, he coined it the first time I heard it, was the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Just the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Thinking if I have more stuff and if I have that truck and if I have that house and if I have that boat, then I will be happy. And we get that truck and we get that boat and we get that house and we're the same person. Bro, getting that truck's not gonna make you more of a man. All right, Getting that house is not gonna make you more fulfilled. Buying that certain kind of beer is not going to give you a six-pack on your stomach, at least. This is not. The cul-de-sac of stupidity is going around and around, thinking it's going to change. And so what is our motivation then? It's, it's grace. It's grace. It's gratitude for what uh, Christ has already done for you. And here's what you find out. What you find out is, is the gospel drives deep into our heart. Um, and is it, is, it, is it loosens, what it does, it'll, it'll loosen our hold on our stuff but then it'll tighten our grip on people. So our goals and our dreams and our aspirations are not completely tied up in stuff. They're also tied up in seeing what is God's kingdom gonna do and how are people gonna be affected and how can I glorify God and be, be a, a, a vehicle for good for other people. Again, the gospel is the root of that. The, the fruit of that is generosity. So again, gotta put down motivated by grace. A second one you just gotta see in the text is it's, it's this, it is, it is connected to the gospel. This is super important as well. Did you see like verse 33, 34 in there? This is a great, it's not a balance, it's just an observation. Verse 33 says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So again, this was not about, this was not a social gospel, right? This was a sharing gospel. It was both and. It wasn't one or the other, it was both and. And just so you know, historically, there has been a kind of a division in the church uh, for hundreds of years, and that division typically has gone. It's like, well, we're a church that, we're a church that's, uh, you know, we're about the social gospel, the social gospel. And what that has typically meant is social gospel has historically meant, all right, we're going to feed people and we're going to clothe people and we're going to shelter people. But historically, what has happened is, is churches have really, really emphasized that. They've gotten away from the verbal gospel, which actually is the gospel. And so what they, in, in some ways do, if, if all you're doing is the social gospel, then it, you're giving people a more comfortable place to go to hell from if you never share the true gospel with them. On the other hand, churches kind of like ours, we can also emphasize maybe the other side of that, and that is like a sharing gospel, all right? We'll tell you about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, all right? We'll talk to you about the atonement. We'll talk to you about all of that, 
but it's hard for sometimes for people to hear the gospel when their stomach is growling so loud because they hadn't eaten in a couple of days. And what you see here is you see both and, hand in glove, declaring the gospel, demonstrating the gospel. So let me be clear, the goal, the primary objective in the book of Acts throughout the church's history, the primary objective is to preach the gospel. Listen, it's not a focus on what we do. We can beautify schools, we can love on teachers, we can feed the hungry and all that stuff is great and we will do that. But the gospel itself biblically is an announcement, not of what we do, it's what Jesus has done. All right, he lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death in our place. He rose from the grave victoriously. That's the gospel. So when you talk about connected to the gospel, we've got to realize that our works, generosity does not replace the verbal preaching of the gospel. It just demonstrates the gospel, that demonstrates the love, demonstrates the grace that we're declaring with our lips. All right, so when you look at this text, you've got both You've got both in. And this, by the way, this is why I love the partnership we have with Compassion International. All right, years ago, by the way, Compassion International, uh, we have been partnered with them. I can't remember for how long, maybe four years now or so. And the reason, one of the reasons that we love Compassion International and we're so heavily partnered with them is they have a great combination of demonstrating the gospel and declaring the gospel as well. And if you don't know about them, uh, let me just, a number of years ago, it might've been 08 in the financial crisis. They had some consultants like many nonprofits did. You had some nonprofits, you had some consultants come in and those consultants told Compassion International, hey, you guys are really heavy on the Jesus talk. You're really heavy on the gospel. You're really heavy on, on connecting this thing, but I tell you what, times are tough. And so if you would just kind of tamp down all the Jesus talk, then you would have other people who want to contribute uh, to Compassion International. You know what they did? Very wisely, they fired the consultant and raised up the whole talk of Jesus and the gospel. And God bless them. They're like a, they're a billion dollar a year nonprofit. And if you're part of Biltmore Church, hey, great job. They told us this week that actually we're one of the top 10 churches in regards to number of kids that we sponsor. So again, it's amazing that in their case for $38 a month, they can feed a child, they can clothe a child, they can educate a child, and they share the gospel with the child and their families. I mean, that's amazing. If, I mean, if, I don't know how you do it on $38 a month. If we could figure out a way, we would do it, but we can't, and they do, and it's awesome. It's awesome. And church, what we want to hear is this, is when you look in the New Testament, by connected to the gospel, when you look at when the gospel's preached, it's oftentimes accompanied by signs. So when Jesus would do miracles, for example, those were not like cute little tricks in order to entertain people. Okay, they weren't like, okay, hey, for my next trick, I'm going to make Peter elevate. There's none of that. All the signs, they're connected to salvation. They're connected to the gospel. So when he, for example, calms the storm, it is to show that, you know what? Jesus reigns over the storm. Jesus is gonna take the storm of judgment on himself. When he heals people physically, that is, that is a sign, that is a sign with a message saying, you know what? When he dies on the cross in your place for you, what he's also gonna do is take away your sin and all that sin is destroyed, he will heal. And so when we demonstrate the gospels in our, in gospel in our community, what we're saying is we want our life to match up, the life that we're living to match up with what our lips are actually saying, but it has to be connected to the gospel. And so let me give you one uh, last thing and that's this. And this is where the rubber meets the road. It has, it's demonstrated by action. 
It's demonstrated by action. This is, this is the blind spot of the church in the West. Sometimes as a church, we've looked back and looked back at people that had great theology a couple hundred years ago. And you're like, how could they do some of those things and yet have good theology? And the only thing you can think of, that was just an, an enormous blind spot, all right? How could you not see other men and women made in the image of God and treat them that way? And we look, how terrible that is. How, and it is terrible. It is an enormous blind spot. I think the church in about 100 years is going to look back at the church nowadays in the West and all the stuff that we have, all the material wealth that we have, all the toys that we have, and say, what an enormous blind spot that the church had. And what you see here in the text is you see it is demonstrated. It's not just a talky-talk. It's a walkie-walk. It's the idea of they demonstrated it by action. Barnabas is our, Barnabas is our person that's lifted up. Verse 36 and 37 shows action. He sold, he brought, he laid, he met needs, all right? Barnabas is a person of action, all right? He's not acting a certain way. He's a contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. And anytime you see Barnabas in the Bible, in the book of Acts, you see him doing something great. Again, the only hero in the Bible is Jesus, but you do see some examples on how we can put our faith into action. Barnabas is one of those. Here he's the lead giver. He's the one that embraced Paul after Paul was converted and other people didn't trust him. He's the one that led the Antioch church and being more diversified, more in diversification and make sure you understand, hey, these Gentile converts, they're great too. He was in charge of taking up the relief money to Jerusalem. He goes with Paul on his first missionary journey. He's the one that built bridges back to John Mark when John Mark had messed up. And here's the idea. Ananias and Sapphira, they're the opposite of Barnabas. They're put there back to back for a reason. One was lifted up, do this, image this. The other one is a warning, avoid this. Barnabas loved God. The gospel changed his heart. He's not interested in the attention. He just wants to glorify God and do good for people. Ananias and Sapphira are the different. They use God. Their heart was not changed. They wanted attention. They wanted the glory for themselves. So let's get down to where we are. To be as blunt as I can, what you and I both do with our money shows us at least three things. It shows us what I love most. It shows me what I most trust in. And it most certainly tells me what kingdom I am living for. We can fake all the other stuff. We can sing the songs. We can read the Bible. We can teach the studies. We can even memorize the verses. But over and over again, what Jesus said is this. It's like, you want to know a real good barometer of where you are? Then look at the way that you and I actually spend what God puts into our hands. And to, be, to, be, to put it in a collective way, Christians should be the most, we should have the most eye-popping generosity that the world has ever seen. Not just a little bit more generous. We are a little bit more generous. We're like 2.5% compared to a non-Christian. It's like 1.8%. But that does not scream, you know what, man, those people are generous. So we don't want just a little more generosity, a little more kindness, a little nicer. No, we're talking about eye-popping, attention-getting, this is for God's glory kind of generosity. And again, uh, we know this to be true in every other area of our life. What I love, I'm going to support. I mean, um, 
Let me pick on dads for a second. Not dads. Let me just pick on a hypothetical dad. If, if I'm talking to a dad and the dad's like, man, I love my family. I love my family. I want you to meet him. I'm going to bring you over. And you go over to his house. And he starts to show you all this stuff, man. He's, I mean, first of all, you go in there and you see his wife's kind of got a, some old 25-year-old car, barely runs. The kids are in tattered clothes. They got no toys at all. They got nothing. The house is not well-maintained. None of that. You're like, man, he must, re, he must really be barely getting by. And then he takes you in the garage and he shows you this awesome four by four pickup. He shows you the tremendous bass boat. He shows you a killer set of golf clubs and all this stuff. You're like, you know what? Uh, hey, I'm looking at two things. You say you love your family, but I'm actually seeing that you really don't love your family. You like the idea that you love your family, but if you loved your family, you would put their needs in front of your own. And so... Jesus' core teaching reinforces this when he says, actually, in a couple of different parables, he says, no one, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In the synopsis verses, you cannot serve both God and money. Again, that's the only thing he says that about. He says, you cannot. It's impossibility to serve both God and money because you'll love one and despise the other. So here's the deal. Both God and money are going to play a role in our life. And what he says is only one can be preeminent, only one can be on top, only one can be in first place. And that's the one you're gonna trust in, that's the one you're gonna love, uh, that's the one you're gonna be devoted to. And so you and I have to ask a question, which one, which one is it, which one is it? Now, I'll close with this. There, uh, I've never, ever, 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 ever had anybody ever in a counseling session confess that their sin they're struggling with is greed. I've never had that. I've had that. I've had every other sin imaginable. Some you can't imagine. Never had anybody go, you know what, pastor, I'll tell you what I'm really struggling with. I'm really struggling with greed. Never had that. Why? Because both greed and generosity, they, they're subjective. They're kind of a moving target. So let me try to give you two things that you can try to break the cycle and take at least one step toward saying, you know what? God was generous with me. I want to be generous with other people. First word I would just put down is just, again, and you pick it, you pick it. For one month, one quarter, you, maybe your family, but just say, hey, we don't know where we are, if we're generous or not, but just pick a percentage. And the reason a percentage is good is because we're in all different income brackets. Everybody's got an income. So a dollar figure is not nearly as helpful as saying 1%, 5%, 10%, whatever. Take one, five, 10, whatever it is for you. Say, you know what? For one month, one quarter, we're going to take this and we're going to give it to somebody that preaches the gospel, some organization. And again, if, if you're watching online from Ohio or somewhere else, man, find a gospel teaching church and make sure that they're the ones that are, that are the recipients of that. But just for, just for a one, one month, one quarter, say, I'm going, to do, I'm going to pick the percentage because this is a blind spot. And it's a self-grading test. I used to love those in school. You pick the percentage. What you're trying to do, because here's the, God's not trying to get money out of our wallets. He's trying to get the idol out of our hearts. And the idol for so many of us that we're always drawn to, the idol what we look to for security and comfort is money. And so try to figure out a way. I'm going to do this. We're going to 1%. We're just going to take a baby step. But I'll just give you, I'll be a little more blunt with this next one. And I would say, and one of the easiest ways you can begin to chip away, chip toward generosity, chip away on greed, is literally sponsor a compassion child today. 
Sponsor a compassion child today. The question you have for any child advocacy organization is, does it work? And in Compassion International, absolutely it works. Works absolutely. I do not know, again, how they do it. For $38 a month, feed, educate, share the gospel. The first 300 children that Biltmore Church sponsors today, by the way, are going to be from the new child development centers that, through your generosity, we built down there. So the first 300 of them are going to be from that. If we go over that, it'll still stay in Ecuador. But here's what you got to imagine. Imagine if that's your child. Imagine if you've got a child and uh, you work hard, but because the people that we, they're not lazy. They just, they work super hard. It's just not enough. It's just not enough. But imagine if that was, if that was your child and you'd be praying, dear God, help us, help us survive. Now, what we typically do at our church is on a day when we talk about compassion is there'll be packets of children and you'll be able to go to a table and you'll look and you're like, oh, they have my birthday or she reminds me of my daughter or my son picked that young man off the table, whatever that is. And because of COVID and safety and all that stuff, here it'll be a text, all right? It'll be a text, a, sp a sponsor platform. Trust God is going to pick, trust God is going to pick the child for you. But the, one of the biggest things is, well, I can't help everyone. Can't help everyone. Can't help everyone. You can't help everyone. Doesn't mean you can't help one. You can help one. Sometimes people are like, I can't believe in a God, can't believe in a God who would allow children to be starving. All right. How could, how could God let children starve? I think he could turn the whole question around and ask us, how can you let children starve? So I'm not going guilt. I'm just going, I'm going grace right here, but I do want you to meet a couple of them. All right. So, uh, again, this is, these, they're all from, they're all from Ecuador. As a matter of fact, I worked on the pronunciation and the way they, the, the place in Ecuador they're from is Wawa Sumaco. All right. Wawa Sumaco, Ecuador. This is Nasa Ed Marie, beautiful little girl. All right. That's one of them. All right. She's saying, I need a sponsor. Next one, Nikki Louie. All right. So from Wawa Susumako, he's sitting there. Hey, would, some, would I get a sponsor today? One, one more. This is Joe, all right? Joe Marlin. Billmore Church. Um, some of you sponsored kids before. And um, my wife and I, I think we, we have four. We're going we're to sponsor at least one more today. Sometimes people have sponsored kids, and although we have one of the highest retention rates from what CI told us this week in the nation as far as not dropping it, I would challenge you if you're like, you know what, I, kinda, I used to do that, I don't do it now. Please, please sponsor a child. When you look up and you see a myriad of faces looking at you, and you're like, which, which one should I pick? Just trust God. Trust God. You know what? He'll pick the child for you. He'll pick the child for you. And so here's, here's what I want you to do. Let me put you an action plan up. Just right now, uh, text, just text the word Biltmore. And it's not the norm. If you're a Biltmore church guy, it's 28282. It's not that, all right? Uh, trying to work it through Compassion National. But just text the word Biltmore to 83393. Here's what's going to happen. You'll just click the link. 
You'll click the link and you'll fill out the sponsorship. It'll take you about three minutes. You're like, I'm one, I'm, I, need to pr- I need to pray about this as lovingly as I can say. I would say you need to do this unless God is some praying. God says, don't do it. There's some stuff you just know, you know what? I need to do this. It's really clear from what we saw. And that is that, you know what? I need, I need to be more generous. This is a great stewardship way that you can make a difference in a child's life, in a family's life. You're like, well, I, I'm not sure. I'm going to, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to wait to do it tonight. Just do it. Just do it now. Just do it. Because for some of you, this is that small step of faith. You're like, you know, I'm strong in the Bible. I pray a lot, but God does not have this area of your life. This is just an example. Again, the goal is not generosity in response to a sermon. The goal is generosity of life in response to the gospel. But this is a step of faith that some of you actually just haven't taken. He's got a lot of parts of your life. I even know some leaders that are at church and you're like, you know what? I just can't trust God in this area. And it reminds me just, I told you before, I was like one time I was learning how to, re- one time years ago, I was at Canicut Camp in Branson, Missouri, and they taught us how to repel. And when you learn how to repel, you've got to lean over and you've got to put all your weight on that rope, trusting that the rope will hold you up. Is it scary? Yes. Is it frightening? Yes. Is it trustworthy? Absolutely. And so trust God with it and say, God, I can't help everybody, but I can help some. And, um, you know, we thought about, it. I'm a, we thought about, it. I'm going to play some, some song that's going to like stir your feelings. It's kind of like those commercials about, what is it? Sarah McLaughlin It's like, Hey, rescue an animal. And man, I'm all for rescuing animals, but Hey, listen, people are more, in, sorry, Peter, people, kids are more important than animals. And so church, we can do this maybe as a connect group, maybe as a watch party, you're like, Hey, um, Let's sponsor a child or four. Let's do this together as a joint project. You talk about bringing it together. You're going to get letters. You're going to write letters to them. You're going to be able to send a Christmas gift to them, all that stuff. Let me encourage you. Go ahead and do that. Text the word Biltmore to that number, 83393. And what that'll do is that'll get you in the loop where you begin to sponsor, sponsor a child who you might or might not ever see down here, but uh, could very well welcome you when you, when you arrive into heaven, Okay. So I'm going to pray and uh, let's do that today. Let's get those three or 400 children. Let's get them sponsored today. Okay. I love you. Father, thank you for your generosity to us in the gospel. And my simple prayer is that uh, as a church, we would respond and just show in a small way that we, we are going deep in understanding the generosity you showed toward us when you lived the life we were supposed to live and then died instead of us, instead of us. Got to pray for people that are watching if they've never taken that first step of faith to say, I want to embrace the generosity of God when Jesus died on the cross. I pray that right now with their head bowed, whether in their living room, their bedroom, in a coffee shop, wherever they are, that they would say, you know what? I want to know Jesus. I want to know the reality that Jesus paid it all, that my sin debt can be washed away. I can have a fresh slate. I can have a relationship with the God who loves me and created me. And I pray right now they would say, you know what? What Jesus did on the cross counted for me. And they would embrace you by faith. God, I pray for the disciples of Jesus that have embraced you by faith already, that a watching world would see a generation of Christians that are amazingly, amazingly generous with our lives, with our resources, with our time, and whether they ever believe how we believe, God, that they would say, you know what, they believe it, they believe it, and they live it out 
for the glory of God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.